Together with the University of Leeds, we're launching a new free-to-access online course, Evaluation for Arts, Culture and Heritage, Principles and Practice. This self-guided course offers the opportunity to hear from experts, develop new approaches and build your evaluation skills and confidence. Whether you're in the early stages of your career, you're a long-term sector professional, or you're a senior leader, this course is for anyone working across arts, culture and heritage, looking to learn more about evaluation. Visit culturalvalue.org.uk for more information about the course, which will be launching in September 2023. How do we make evaluation meaningful? How can we identify the right questions to ask and the most crucial information to capture? How can we give our participants space to express themselves? And how can we make sure they genuinely benefit from evaluation? In 2021, the Centre for Cultural Value responded to growing industry-wide demand for support with evaluation. The result was the Evaluation Principles, a collection of critical ideas that guide cultural sector workers through the evaluation process. We developed the Evaluation Principles through an informed research process involving over 40 representatives from across the sector, providing a variety of roles and perspectives. It's been two years since we first launched the Evaluation Principles, so we wanted to check in in Reflecting Value, Evaluation Principles and Practice, we're talking to people in the cultural sector about the principles and how they have found using them in their work. My name's Stephen Welsh and you're listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. This week, we're talking about empathy. One of our people-centered principles, empathy can be elusive. It can be hard to talk about it practically, but if we want to make evaluation count, we have to make it count for everyone. What steps can we take to be more understanding evaluators? How can we create a safe evaluation environment? One that can bring in missing voices with unique opinions? And how can we overcome our own expectations of an evaluation so that it really gives back to our audiences and participants? A sound artist and researcher based across Leeds and London, Alex DeLittle is experiencing life as an evaluator for the first time. He is currently funded by the Horizons Institute and is attached to the centre to undertake a longitudinal evaluation of the My Leeds 2023 neighbourhood hosts. Through this community-based project, Alex is working with residents across Leeds to explore their stories and culture, conducting evaluation through a long-term approach called Deep Hanging Out. We're here to talk about our evaluation principle, empathy. Uh, but before we get into it, I'm interested in what an empathetic evaluation looks like to you, Alex, and why is empathy an important principle? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. Maybe a good jumping off point is what does an evaluation look like without empathy? For me, empathy is this, it's an absolutely crucial aspect. Um, without empathy, we don't create the possibility to kind of create like safety, comfort, um, support. And if you don't create that, how are you ever going to be able to truly ask questions uh, and have answers which mean something? So that is kind of, for me, it's, it's, you know, there's almost no point in doing it if there's not empathy. I suppose what that comes down to for me, this idea of listening is really important. It's like the, it's the moment in which things are registered between individuals. It's a mode of active awareness which opens up kind of relations between between people or between people and um, places as well city environments or um, any kind of environment and so for me like there's this i don't think they're synonymous 
but there's certainly a really strong overlap between this active listening and the quality and a quality of empathy to listen is to is to open up to something which you're not necessarily sure of that well there's this idea of hearing as understanding so you speak i understand your words i hear you um but this idea of listening as an act of opening up as an act of kind of um trusting so if i were kind of creating an evaluation to try and um create spaces in which people are able to listen to one another is a way to kind of create an underpinning of empathy that really brings me back again thinking about leeds 2023 and your description of your work and your involvement in it and it says part of your evaluation approach will be to hang out with the neighborhood program and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what this means and how taking a more integrated long-term approach to evaluation within the community can actually be more empathetic and move us away from those extractive and exploitative uh, ways of doing things that have happened in the past. Yeah, this um, hanging out in inverted commas um, can be a bit oblique, I suppose, but there's a, there's a clear answer. So this is kind of a traditional technique in anthropology, this idea of the participant who who is kind of simultaneously observing and there's this guy called Clifford Gitts who's quite a kind of well-known anthropologist and he came up with this idea of deep hanging out which is like a slight distinction from this idea of participant observation and it begins to blur the boundaries between the observer and the participant I think in participant observation and I'm no anthropologist, so if any, there are any anthropologists out there, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is my understanding, which is that the participant observer is still more of a researcher and there's still more of a kind of line between the researcher and the, the kind of community that you might find yourself in, for example. And in terms of deep hanging out, what, what that allows is the boundaries to be blurred. So you're over time seeking to make connections with people, you're seeking to make it about this idea of kind of building relationships you're not trying to avoid that and in this project it acts as a basis for fostering relationships with the neighborhood neighborhood hosts and also possibly their community so it's about um, going to their weekly meetings um, spending time in their neighborhoods going to the events and being genuinely interested about both the people and kind of what they do and fundamentally what it means for them you know i'm doing this because i care about leads, I care about culture in leads, and I want to, you know, I'm rooting for these neighborhood hosts. Um, and for me, that's the kind of underpinning thing about this research. It's I don't see them as subjects of study. Ben Wormsley, who's the director for the Center of Cultural Value, wrote a really interesting piece on this idea of deep hanging out in the arts. And it, this idea that it encourages the development of a longer term, more honest relationship between co-researchers and it prioritizes feelings, beliefs, emotions, processes, and experience. So I think that's a kind of key, a really key distinction. And in terms of the overall evaluation, whatever the activities happen to be, it's underpinned by this both, both method, but also atmosphere of like hanging out and um, genuinely building connections. Described as genuinely youth-led, rising arts agencies see a path to empathy through listening and co-creation. The Bristol-based organisation was set up to support young creatives and is currently co-directed by Uella Jackson and Jess Bunyan. Through the Centre for Cultural Values Collaborate programme, rising arts agency are currently working with academic researcher Andriana Drencheva at King's College London exploring the nature of truly equitable partnerships in the cultural sector and particularly how power imbalances manifest for grassroots organizations and marginalized creatives for them empathetic evaluation also means asking yourself why you're asking questions that could be pointed unnecessary or even invasive i'm interested to know from the both of you what do you think an empathetic evaluation looks like? Why is empathy an important principle? Jess, do you want to start? 
It's a really interesting way to talk about it, actually, because I think the word empathy is quite missing in the set. You know, we have these um, buzzwords, we all go through phases where it becomes the light sight ghostly thing and then it disappears. And actually empathy, I don't think is something that a lot of people are talking about. And I think it really links into conversations we're having a lot at the moment around equity. And for me, those are quite similar, you know, they speak to each other quite widely. And I think in evaluation, you need both of those things. It needs to not be an extractivist process where the evaluator is coming in from on high to find out what the people think to like boost their own ideas of what's happened, if you like. I think there needs to be like a genuine exchange in both the process. So asking the people that you're evaluating what they think of the process of the evaluation as well as what they think about what's happened or the thing that you're evaluating. I think sharing that agency is incredibly important and being transparent about the why. I think often like there's a level of suspicion in particularly marginalised communities. If you go in and evaluate them, they're like, why? What are you going to do with this? Like, who are you? You know, it feels very... um othering in a lot of ways and I think um actually everyone kind of is an evaluator even if you don't talk about it like that and I think that's how you get the most genuine evaluation and so that empathy of going everyone in this space has something to teach each other so how do we have that kind of exchange rather than just getting through these questions so I can put my report together or whatever. I'm interested in hearing from you both on how listening leads to empathy because of course at Rising Arts Agency it's led by young creatives and is as much about hearing their voices and taking their lead as it is about supporting them in their development and one element of our empathy principle is actually that we ask participants what is important about the activity and encourage co-creation in evaluation. How does the input of these young creatives change the way you approach what you do at Rising Arts Agency? Yuella, do you want to go first? I'm going to ping pong back and forth between you, the two of you. I think it's important to note that that, you know, that was how we, how we started, you know, out of listening. And I think we do a lot to ensure that there's a kind of infrastructure for listening within our our team whether within our community so whether it is you know holding regular community labs whether it is um you know creating spaces for reflection you know having a month off in august for that kind of reflective month to kind of listen to think to connect for us that's really important and i think actually we've we've kind of toiled or there have been times where it's felt like oh should we just split rising into either two arms or just kind of be a kind of consultancy service and what would that look like if we just solely did that kind of more commercial the corporate or you know based on the kind of knowledge and insight that we've gained but actually it would be so empty (laughs) you know being connected to our community being able to hear what's going on being able to be responsive you know is the reason why we're able to be successful and effective consultants so I think we've, we've definitely realised that for us, it's really important that those things stay together and that young people are embedded throughout every kind of stage of the process. And also, you know, not, not assuming that we know things. That's, you know, that's been a, a big thing. And it kind of relates to that thing of empathy. But, you know, I think there can be sometimes an arrogance, particularly when you've built a, a you know, Rising has a brand of you know being youth-led and and you know the expertise that's within the team but that would very quickly dry up if we were like okay you know if we distance or were disconnected from our community so I think not to be extractivist is you know is a big thing but that's why you know we make sure that we are offering some sort of value to our community yeah Totally. I think the kind of underlying thing of that is that it stops us being complacent. And I think that is our real motivation for existing is the complacency that we see, the kind of risk aversion or seeing things as risky that aren't or people holding on to power for longer than they need to. And really like having a community of young people that is constantly at the forefront of experiencing 
the biggest changes in society, all of the crises, multiple crises that we're going through at the moment, doesn't allow us to be complacent, doesn't allow us to be like, oh, rising at this stage and we've got this profile and we've got this amount of money in the bank account so we can just like relax. And maybe that's why we can only be directors for five years <laughs> at a time. But yeah, I think I think that is that is the thing. That's why young people are this motivating force. That's why other organisations are so obsessed with engaging with young people too, because they see something in this generation that they know they haven't seen before, that they know they need to listen to before they become obsolete. And that's really like what we're excited about is how do we also broker those relationships with the trust that we have because we are part of that community for institutions to be able to do that listening and active listening. We have also all done coaching training and active listening is like one of the key principles of coaching. It is about that like not listening so that you can speak but like hearing what someone's saying. And maybe that means you don't have an immediate reply and being comfortable with that silence and comfortable with being like, I don't have anything to say now. I really want to just sit with that and embedding reflection. And like you say, it's not these aren't just like buzzwords that we throw around at Rising. And I think more and more as we go into more spaces, we're finding that explaining that people are like, oh, wow, you mean you like book out time for reflection? It's like, yeah, otherwise, when do you do it? When it comes to empathetic evaluation, where do we even start? Can an evaluation really just be tacked onto our activity after the fact, or do we need to be making time for it from the very beginning? Should we treat evaluation more like a shared experience, a communal project in itself, rather than a last minute extraction? Morvan Cunningham is a freelance creative with a wide range of experience in developing and delivering cultural projects. They are currently creative lead at Culture Collective, a Scottish government-funded network of 26 participatory arts projects across Scotland that are shaped by local communities. On top of this, they champion Failspace, a toolkit which provides creatives with ways of reflecting on and learning from failure. Morvan talked to us about avoiding extraction and evaluating within the project as it's happening rather than as it comes to a close. Questions around being extractive is something uh, that comes up quite a lot in my work in general because a lot of the work that I do, especially with Culture Collective, is working with organisations that are working with artists in participatory settings. So actually a real worry and consciousness, I think, of those organisations and those artists who are working in those settings is not to be extractive in the first place with their practice, because it's easy to also do that, to go into a place, to kind of mine a local community for its stories and knowledge and experience. And then, you know, to make a bit of art and maybe actually to take that art away and to take and to take the everything away from them. And the, the, the community is left poorer, for the want of a better word, um, because uh, the have also had their experiences taken away from them and not res respected or given anything back. I suppose it's that thing as well about thinking about that it's a two-way street. So in terms of the practice, I think it's important for the practice not to be extractive and in exactly the same way any evaluation that comes behind that or around that uh, shouldn't be extractive either. I suppose even just me, my saying that is kind of a bit topsy-turvy because I believe that evaluation and evaluation processes should be have instigated from the beginning far too often I've, i find myself and I've, I've experienced it on projects that i've worked as well is where there's been a need to have an external evaluator brought on they're always brought on like halfway through the project or towards the end of the project so they have like no idea about you know the, the origins or the genesis of the project they're coming with their own toolkit that presumably they've been selected out of a tender um, of other toolkits that whoever is either funding the project or the organisation that's undertaking the project has decided that this toolkit is the best toolkit um, to be used. And there's been no kind of element of uh, of conversation even with uh, the, the participants at the start of the project about what evaluation processes they might find useful, maybe about like what, what the point of the evaluation is as well. I mean, there's something about a kind of a square peg in a round hole isn't it is that if you just want to have a nice report at the end of this with lots of diverse looking people on the cover and lots of stats saying it's been really really successful 
then you know you're probably going to get that aren't you <laughs> like especially if you're if you're paying an external evaluator a decent whack of, of money to do that but actually why are you undertaking this evaluation what do you want to know is this something that you've worked in for, uh, for a long time are you wanting to learn are you wanting to change your processes and that's also like something that I suppose bringing in that um fail space experience I've, I've got as well so fail space as you mentioned um at the start Stephen is a it's a project that looks at ways that the cultural sector in general can can learn to speak about failure but also learn from failure and I think that that's a really important thing and also kind of maybe trying to strip some of the the shame and guilt and other kind of negative associations with failure so as a fail space champion I I, I can do a bit of training and we have a toolkit as well there's there's always a toolkit out there but one of the toolkits that the fail space uses is talking about kind of almost like a spectrum of success and failure or shades of success and failure and failure for whom I think is really important um for me um I so for example like you might be I mean some of my partnership working with uh with the hubs in Edinburgh you know is is a is a, a project of failure if an institution works in partnership with a hub to access participants you know participants have a good time institution has a good time but maybe hub doesn't feel that it was a very good partnership and that they maybe maybe they feel that that was extracted in some ways i wouldn't necessarily say that that was a a, a failed project it's obviously had real success if the participants are happy but you need to acknowledge that maybe in some areas things have could have done better than others so it's i think it's just being really conscious of um of where things can could have been better being honest about it and then learning from that and, ch and hopefully changing your approach and processes going forward do you think there's a sort of tension then between empathy and judgment because if if you're a people-centered empathetic approach to evaluation and people are telling you things and saying well okay that could have gone better or we felt there was an element of exploitation or extraction or actually um it was completely divergent. So what we took from the project wasn't actually written down in the project bid or the project proposal. Do you feel, uh, well, we can all feel that sometimes, can't we? We can feel as though we will be judged for that, as though that would be considered an unsuccessful outcome. So do you think there's a tension there between empathy and judgment in the cultural sector? And I, from your own experience and even from fail space, I mean, how can we overcome that? I think it's a huge thing, isn't it? Because, you know, even in doing some of the training with Failspace and, and talking a bit more openly about failure and talking about failure that I and the rest of the champions kind of had experienced in our own projects, there is these kind of really difficult emotions that come into that. And I think you're right to use the word judgment because there is a thing where often we judge ourselves first. So we're judging ourselves really negatively, perhaps, and then we're fe fearful of others' negative judgment of ourselves. And then, you know, that has a whole kind of connotation. And, you know, even the fact that organizations are less likely to say to a funder I believe anyway that things didn't go well because they're worried that a funder will judge them for it and then not not pay them any more funding any any time in the future because they might fail again when when in my experience of working with particularly kind of freelance artists and, and speaking to funders is that funders really welcome any kind of feedback negative or otherwise in fact more so negative because they don't they don't hear that stuff that much but actually I, that thing is as well about kind of being able to learn from it and actually do things differently and 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 without having failure kind of talked about then nothing nothing changes for our evaluation to be empathetic we need to account for all voices and to understand that we might not share the same feelings about our projects as our participants do. This involves listening to the outliers, those isolated voices who might not commonly feed back to an evaluation and might reflect on our work in a different way from others. What can we learn from them and how do we bring them into the process? So that, folks, brings me on to a point about paying attention to the outliers. So that means to people whose views are important because they're the exception. Jess, have you found these responses to be really useful for your evaluation or your projects when you've engaged with outliers, people who, who don't normally 
connect with arts, cultural heritage, or at the very least, don't normally participate in evaluation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, every single person in our community is an outlier. So I think I find this term like really interesting, but I understand what it means. And actually, the example that's just sprung to mind is when we were doing the evaluation for a funded project and the funder set these questions and we were like, these questions are ridiculous. No one's going to understand them. And sure, we'll ask them. You know, we, we push back, but they were like, ask them and then we can review kind of thing. And one of the artists just gave either one word answers, like yes, no questions like, how do you feel about, you know, whatever the jargon was. Um, or was like, what does that word mean? What is this for? Like, I don't understand. Was very not combative, like that's not who they are, but they are a person in our community who we know question things and would probably see themselves as more of an outlier than a lot of other people in our community. But just, I think, seeing that rawness of like, yes, no, what does that mean? Back, throwing that back at the funder and going, is this what you want from people? Like, do you understand who we're engaging with? They then allowed us to sort of ask our own questions that fit in to their evaluation framework still, but in a more accessible, useful way for everyone involved. But I think that, like, questioning is what's so important. Like, I think, and when you were talking just now about some of those kind of complacency relevance points, I think there's this big fear of, like, doing something badly or admitting that you failed and like that has been a big thing in rising actually our last impact report focused on our best failures of the year because we really that narrative of like you do a project that has failed that you've damaged people within and yet you want the end narrative to be we succeeded and so often we see these cycles particularly kind of large city-wide um kind of region-wide programs that happen the evaluation says everything was great ignores everything that went badly doesn't speak to those people and then they get the next cycle of funding and repeat it and you're like but isn't the goal to get better isn't the goal to learn and improve and it's yeah so I think ways that you can disrupt that narrative I think outliers are really important to that because they are the people that you should be working with to change your services right they should be the ones that are it's not necessarily the people who are always going to come to the show or whatever that are going to really tell you how to improve it's the people that came once and had a bad experience and when we think of missing voices and when we talk about the principles we talk about the need to be proactive and to go out of our way to engage those who are being left out of the process why do evaluations create situations where people feel like outliers and how can this actively be challenged to make people feel safe to feed back to us confidently and critically? Uella? We have a really potentially difficult relationship with, with evaluation because like what Jess was kind of saying about the, you know, there's often pressures from funders or external forces to, to ask or um, yeah, to ask quite invasive questions. We've done a lot of pushing back around unnecessary, collecting unnecessary amounts of data on people, you know, asking questions that we feel are invasive about like, what's your sexuality? Like, are we dating? Like, why do we need to know? <laughs> but, you know, so, you know, maybe in comparison to other organisations, you know, we don't have a massive like folder that we can, you know, like a password protected folder that we can say oh this is all of our evaluation on things we I think we have a much broader definition of what counts as evaluation and what counts as valuable so it might not be the survey it might be the spaces that you know when we're doing an event the spaces that people go into or the ways in which you know people talk about it on social media or whether people come again or how many people you know how many times we know that little Johnny comes and they always talk you know they always by themselves and then this time they're not things like that so I think I think for us it's really important to to ensure that all forms of evaluation is valid being open and curious open to different forms of evaluation or, or different forms of information but also asking questions like we make sure that we create enough space for asking questions 
in our community, we love doing things like labs where we ask a central question around a certain topic, invite people, pay them to come and just have a chat. And whatever, however that comes out, whether it's using post-its, whether it's the kind of individual journaling that people do, whether it's the conversations in, in small groups or a larger group, that's all part of the evaluation. But we find that Sometimes it works really well to have a dedicated evaluation space where we're like, oh, let's all come together and think about how well that went, how badly it went. Or it might be, actually, that's not the best way. Maybe we have a massive party and we do a little bit of chatting to people. So I think for us wanting to kind of make sure that it feels really organic and not doing evaluation for evaluation's sake. So being really clear, like Jess said, on the why, but also being really transparent letting people know like what we're doing what we're thinking about and so we do like monthly um, newsletters called what we're thinking about where we take a deep dive into a certain topic whether it's around access whether it's around equity whether it's about our relationship to the environment we want we want to feel open we want people to know what we're thinking we're thinking about so if we do a you know a newsletter saying this is what we're really thinking about this is what we're kind of toiling over these are the tensions And then we ask you next week about something related to that. You'll know why. And it doesn't feel like it's out of the blue. One of the ways in which arts and culture organisations traditionally make people feel like outliers is actually not giving them the agency to respond in the way that works for them. It's like you either do this tick box survey or that's it. (laughs) So if that isn't an accessible form of feeding back to you, you already feel like an outlier. How more than can we offer and communicate the incentive of, of evaluation? How can we convince people or encourage them to see the value in evaluation if they participate in it? Building up that relationship and trust and people believing, being again really open about what what the objectives of, of the project are, what the objectives of the evaluation are, what the, the, the hopes may be for any kind of legacy. And if I mean again, you can't you can't dictate legacy at the very start of a project when you haven't even begun it but maybe uh, identifying what kind of legacy the participants might want from this particularly if it is you know time sensitive or funding dependent so you need to be really kind of thinking about that really early on it's like okay we don't nobody wants to parachute in and parachute out of a place so what what can we do who are we working with on the ground what what kind of long-term results I don't even want to say change in some ways because that's kind of implying that something has to change maybe everyone's really happy with you they don't need they don't need to be improved or like you know bettered by the experience does everyone just want to have a really nice time doing the one thing that they did and then that's enough but yeah I suppose I suppose it's it is like being really open about what kind of results that those participants are looking for then if the the organisation or the evaluator, the people in position who are taking undertaking that evaluation also undertake some kind of trust and relationship to go, OK, well, actually, we, we can take that on. Or actually, do you know what? We can't take that on, but we could support X amount of group to get established who could take that on. I suppose it's that element of um, taking responsibility and not promising anything that you can't deliver retrospectively. So you've touched on this slightly already, Alex, but it's really interesting that link between co-creation and empathy as well. So I'm interested in how you might think about being actually co-creative in the evaluation process. It was a real puzzle at the beginning of the appointment. In a way, it's kind of somehow feels dishonest if you're just going to go in and kind of interview people and say, this is how this is going to work. when. The entire backdrop of the exercise, the reason for being here is that there's this focus on co-creative work or in participatory work and involvement in kind of democratizing how activity is conceptualized and run. So yeah, that was a, that was kind of a series of challenges at the beginning. And I played with everything from like, let's sit down and co-create this evaluation to let's come up with something kind of fairly fixed. And I kind of ended up settling somewhere in between because I think one really key thing is that the, you know, the neighborhood hosts, they're, they're, they're employed for a set amount of hours in a way more, 
more co-creation than they've already agreed to do would, would err into this place of extraction again, because you'll be asking for sort of extra time. So there are so many different kind of dynamics that you have to consider when you're, when you're kind of creating a study like this. And I kind of ended up with three kind of key areas to the study, which have within them some play, you know, so they can kind of, they can kind of just happen if they need to, but they can kind of also be embellished and um, the neighborhood hosts, if they like to, can kind of step in and, and have a bit more of a bit more agency in, in terms of how they want it to go, what they want to say, what they want to contribute. So there are kind of three, three key areas to what I'm looking at doing. The first one is walking interviews, and that's about allowing or, or inviting the neighborhood hosts to have a platform to talk about and from and in their neighborhoods. So these will kind of go out as a series of podcasts and it's up to, you know, that the neighborhood hosts choose where uh, we're going to go, what we're going to talk about. There won't really be any fixed questions. It will kind of be reflective. It will be about what they want to say. And the idea is that the output will be, you know, it will be kind of in the public realm, but it will be a platform for them to say what they want to say about it. And I suppose another key thing here is that we'll be recording kind of ambient audio. So it will cap the idea is that we'll capture the place as well. So we're not just capturing the voices, but we'll capture the voices in contexts. And there'll also be this kind of indeterminate aspect of, you know, who might we bump into? Where might we go? Are we having a conversation with the person in the local cafe? All of this stuff is important to me. Uh, there's this background idea called sonic ethnography, which is kind of putting a sonic focus on, on a kind of ethnographic approach to things. So not just thinking about what is said as information, but thinking about what is said as affect, as potentially a response to a kind of, you know, a context around, oh, I see that building and it reminds me of this, or this person's important in the community for these reasons. So that's number one. Number two is we'll be using this online platform for conversation. So again, a number of neighborhood hosts will be invited to have kind of ongoing conversations on that platform and those will be in private channels so again it's a space to discuss what feels important to discuss and that will kind of happen over a longer period of time and it will be on their terms so maybe they'll have time to do a lot of it on certain occasions and maybe it will kind of wane on other occasions but it's designed to incorporate this more or lessness and people can, can include videos or recordings or images and so on so that's um you know that that the idea of kind of resource is really important. And finally, and maybe the most co-productive kind of strand of this research, and also the bit that, that might be most live and exciting is we're planning to host a series of meals in the wards of the, around maybe four or five of the wards uh, following the activity that's going to happen in the summer. And for listeners, that's the neighborhood hosts are going to be, they're kind of responsible for some, an event um, in their neighborhood across the summer. We're calling these weekenders. So you might have um, a world music festival in one ward. You might have a kind of gala or a, um, a picnic in the park. There's one that's about sports. Um, so following these events, the idea is to host meals in the communities, four or five of them, and um, to invite people from Leaf 2023, maybe to invite local councillors, for the neighbourhood host to determine the guest list that they would like to feed everybody. So to bring everybody together. And then to have a conversation about the impact of this activity, the, how, how we think about success in relation to this activity, uh, what the neighborhood hosts and their communities would like to happen next. So again, it's a space for, hopefully, to allow some agency to be created and for the local councillor to be in the room and to hear this stuff. And so it's not necessarily just about the research as research, but the research as um, what the research does, creating platforming and creating spaces for these hosts to um, set future agendas because they're the experts now in terms of, you know, th this kind of cultural programming. So yeah, these are some of the, it, that was a very long answer, but these are some of the ways in which I'm trying to kind of embed some of this atmosphere of co-creation into the, into the evaluation. If we truly want to be empathetic, to listen to our audiences and improve their experiences in the future, we need to understand our expectations. 
What happens when we come into a project with preconceived ideas about what we want to get out of it? And how do we avoid this trap? Coming into an evaluation, Morven, we might have these, we've just touched upon it, preconceived ideas about what our evaluations responses will look like, because we want that really positive data, the affirmation that we've achieved what we've set out to do. So we want the responses to look a particular way or what we think should be reflected about the activity. So the activity was brilliant. We reached all these different people. How can we confront this? How do we make sure we are embracing disagreement and avoiding self-promotion? So we know it's important to do that and we want to do that. We want to be more people-centered and empathetic. Have you got any ideas about how you could do that practically? So we use, use the word kind of like preconceived ideas, and I think that that's the thing is to try and put that aside. I mean, it's it's really hard, but you, you don't want to be in this kind of hamster wheel of like, well, maybe some people do. They just want to be in a hamster wheel of churning out amazing projects all the time with really happy participants. And, you know, yay, we're, we're, we're doing our job properly. But there's that th I was thinking um, before the call this morning around, um, you know, science experiments. I used to do science experiments and experiments at school. And you'd and you'd be like you'd, I can't remember what the, the the scientific name for it, but you'd you'd have an idea of what what might happen, and you'd have to write that down before you did the experiment. And it's like, what do you think if you will happen if you join these two chemicals together? And you'd be like, okay, I think if I put these two chemicals together, there's going to be a chemical explosion. I mean, that would be good. I mean, they were normally like you know, like you know, maybe one would go purple or something, and then you'd do it, and then it, and it would happen, and you go, yes, I, I, it happened as the way I thought it was going to happen. That's science. It it just feels like when you're working with people, you just you don't you don't necessarily know how it's going to land. Just because maybe you did an exact same uh, project with some other community members just down the road a year previous and it was a roaring success doesn't mean that it's going to that exact same method or approach is going to work elsewhere or even at the same time in the same in a different place but you know I, I I just think it's it's a funny thing to go in with I was also thinking about the element of time and maybe that is that thing about kind of churning out projects is that if you don't have a lot of time and if you don't have a lot of time to dedicate to evaluation or you know evaluation is the thing that kind of maybe gets sidelined or dropped off because capacity and time is is, is difficult for you your organization this is when these kind of sloppy I think approaches can happen so not having or trying as little as possible to have preconceived ideas and notions of how it might turn out at the end when you've put these you know unknowns together trying trying to kind of put that aside trying to listen as much to those elements, I mean, I'm now using this scientific jargon, but you know, the different the different participants within that and maybe what they're looking for. And also just like taking that time and taking the time to see how something develops, to have those conversations about how it's developing while it's developing, and also in in retrospect and in reflection as well. I think it's just so important. Who knows? Who knows what your your shiny report's gonna say at the end of the day? Um, because you, you haven't started it yet. In making evaluation fair, robust and accessible, we have to talk about the idea of truth and how it relates to bias. So coming into an evaluation, we might have these preconceived ideas about what our evaluations responses will look like or what we think should be reflected in the activity. But how do we confront this? So how do we make sure we are embracing disagreement and avoiding self-promotion? Ella. I think it's really important to kind of think of, to be able to sometimes distinguish your organizational why from your like personal why because I think sometimes you know like sometimes a funder needs this or da 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 da, da. but often we want to improve we want to you know we want to get better we're and we're also really curious so I think having some personal questions either at the beginning of the process or towards you know the mid to end point of like what is it that I really want to know about this process what am I curious about what are still what are some of the tensions I think leaning into some of the tensions is a really good way of of, of kind of uh, yeah of thinking about it it might be like this has felt really really good you know, every session that we've had, we've really enjoyed it, but there's been low attainment, low attendance, sorry. Really using those as a kind of, as a baseline, even if it's in your individual reflections, just to kind of separate those organisational whys from the personal whys, because often one of them will be easier to justify 
in terms of how you might kind of lean into some of the discomfort. We're really firm believers around conflict as being generative, but making sure that you kind of create space for conflict in a, a way. And you were kind of talking about, you know, how do you make sure that it feels safe, that it feels held and kind of being sensitive to the ways in which certain conversations might need certain things. So maybe, you know, if you're, for example, doing a um, um, doing a survey or a type form survey or something and asking people, is it OK if we follow up on some of the, you know, anything that you've asked? And if anyone has said anything that you're like, oh, I'd love to follow up on that with a, a conversation, making sure that that's an option. We do a lot of kind of team reflection times to think about the ways in which there will be different opinions within a team as a starting point to just kind of open your eyes to you know for some people that might have gone really well for some people like it went well but actually it took a lot of my time to make that happen um and using some of the team's tensions as a as maybe a gateway to kind of thinking about different um responses from the community or whoever you're kind of um co-creating the evaluation process with you know making sure that there is intersectionality embedded within that we have um done 360 reviews and evaluation where it, it doesn't have to be in one session but making sure that you get that whole rounded or that holistic you know what did that what did that look like for the funder you know what did that look like for the partner that you're working on that with what does that look like for the community what does that look like for the team delivering but yeah I think um for us just kind of making sure that we have no rules when it comes to um or not have no rules but you know have no expectations of how you want to hold it because often sometimes process can be helpful but other times it can be hindering yeah I think like it is one of our biggest frustrations this disparity between the outward reputation of a lot of institutions for being radical and doing great work and the internal experiences of microaggressions and hostility <laughs> that we often find either through projects we've done with them or through experiences of our community and that is why we exist ultimately like I wish none of that friction existed but if it didn't we would fold and I would love to be in a position where that happens I think both of us would love to be like everyone's represented yay closing day for rising you know but unfortunately <laughs> I think whilst we're in this and I also want to acknowledge that there is a lot of pressure on these institutions to be continuously successful, but like a lot of them don't have that kind of business shareholder continuous growth pressure. So I think a lot of it is coming from funders because you need to be seen to be a leader organisation to get continuous funding. And if that is the pinnacle of your business model, if that's what's paying your staff salaries and people's right to feed themselves there is a lot of pressure to keep that reputation growing and to keep innovating and keep being seen at the cutting edge of everything rather than going actually we tried that thing and it didn't work out and so actually we're going to pivot I think is quite a big deal for a lot of people particularly like people who have kind of worked their way up in this very scarcity mindset it cultural sector where it's like there's so few opportunities and we have to be really competitive about getting there and only a few people can be directors and artists and whatever um versus the the people we work with our generation our community are very much collaborative we believe in this abundance mindset like wholeheartedly we want everyone to succeed together we believe there's enough to go around some people just might have to take less power they might have to step aside they might have to share it but we appreciate the like, uh, like Uella was saying, between that kind of organisational and personal feelings around that is very complex. But I think often this risk aversion comes from institutional cultures that are toxic, that are dishonest, that encourage people to overwork to make something succeed when maybe you should just give up on it there's a lot of sunken cost fallacy in the cultural sector of people going well we got this money and we've started this project and it's going off the rails but we have to complete it because otherwise we have to pay the money back and like we can't do that we can never do that and a funder who's like I think funders are 
a lot more flexible than we maybe give them credit for. But I think people are often scared to ask. But I do think there is a lot of innovation happening in that space. It is slow, but I do think similarly, like the sector is not built up for freelancers to ask for higher day rates or negotiate or explicitly talk about money. It's not really set up for people to go like, hey, I'm failing. I need help. Can we pivot? And I think a lot of that is cultural and societal and institutional pressures that feed into that. Um, and we, we've actually, we're developing training this year. And the first one that we piloted was how to take risks. Um, and we did that with some kind of friends of rising, uh, a few of which are in institutions who have gone on to ask questions they were scared to ask before that training and have made things happen that are like really exciting and people weren't against but they just built this thing up in their mind that like if I ask them to take action they're going to say no and then it becomes a whole fight I have to have on my own when actually that's not always the case and I think it is that thing of going like what's the alternative like if I repeat this again and I know it's going to feel bad as an individual in the institution say who like what's the alternative what about if we did genuinely learn from this project even if it starts internal if that's the only place it feels comfortable or within your team or within a few allies across the organization to be like this didn't work I don't want to do it again you know I think I think there needs to be there are individuals that get it and want to admit this stuff but there are a lot of people who are scared to lose their jobs and so it needs to come from the top it needs to come from funders and institutions that they're open to failure and they're open to learning and reflection and genuine evaluation just was saying about that pressure that obviously is talks about a, a story of you know more about longevity as a, you know you either have to be in crisis or you have to be amazing Sometimes it's not like a shiny thing to be like, you know, all the kids are all right or all the kids are not all right. Maybe the, the kids are just chilling. You've been listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. Today's episode featured Alex DeLittle, Morvin Cunningham, Yuella Jackson and Jess Bunyan. If you'd like to get the latest updates from the Centre for Cultural Value, you can sign up for our newsletter at culturalvalue.org.uk forward slash sign up. I've been your host, Stephen Welsh. Thanks for listening.